So what exactly is a chief revenue officer and why does every company need one? Today we'll hear from Shelly Talibus, whose goal is to drive company profitability. We'll learn how she does it and some of the strategies she uses for struggling companies. Tell me, boy, you make me so bored. You need to walk the other way. I tell you once more. Welcome back to Women Leading in Cannabis, where we get real about what it takes for women to raise money in cannabis. You can find us on the PodConnect Network, on iTunes, Spotify, and Pandora. And I'm your host, Kira Reed. If you like what you hear, subscribe to Women Leading in Cannabis and leave us a good review. We'd surely appreciate it. I want to give a shout out to our patrons, the Panther Group, for their ongoing support of women in cannabis and their mission to close the funding gap women face when it comes to raising capital. Thank you for supporting this podcast and women employed in cannabis. All right, welcome to the show, Shelly. Thank you, great to be here. Shelly is the CEO of Vivid Integrated Solutions. She is a proven and reliable expert in driving superior business performance, productivity, and profitability for complex businesses struggling to scale or sale. Most recently, Shelly was the revenue and strategy officer for a large West Coast MSO, where she drove double-digit profitable growth by industrializing operational excellence and optimizing business protocols. Prior, Shelly served in key leadership roles with leading California cannabis brands, driving go-to-market strategies, manufacturing efficiency, and market expansion. Prior to cannabis, Shelly spent two decades in various leadership positions with Fortune 250 and 500 food and beverage companies, addressing and solving complex route-to-market conditions, heavy regulatory burdens, and hyper-competitive pricing pressures, affording the businesses the opportunity to flourish and gain competitive advantage. She has a decade of direct experience in cannabis and hemp, and is committed to advancing the overall stability and maturity of the industry by institutionalizing and applying best-in-class CPG disciplines, analytic rigor, and proven engineered standards to the ever-evolving landscape. All right. Welcome, Shelly. I'm very excited. Thank you. So I want to start with your role that you had as Chief Revenue Officer, because this is not... I don't think I've ever had a guest on here who has been a chief revenue officer. And because this is all about driving revenue, I really would like to dig in and let's talk about what is the purpose? What are the tools and outcomes and why does every company need one? But first let's take a step back and get a brief history of how you found yourself in the cannabis industry and focusing on driving profitability. You bet. So my background, again, as you read in my bio, started in food and beverage uh, for about 20 years with big companies like Dr. Pepper, Snapple Group, Yum Brands, which is the 
um, Yum Brands portfolio of Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, KFC um, globally. Uh, my goal was, and my role was to one, seed out um, their portfolio strategy. So where do we where do we need to play and how do we win? And that started my venture in um, profitizing businesses and monetizing opportunities. Which levers in a mature business model need to be activated? What waste needs to be removed? So uh, the joke with uh, the Taco Bell portfolio is you could not break the back of house, meaning the operation side of it. But we had to have 52 years of innovation in and out with new product development, but not expanding the portfolio of purchases that we made. So the procurement team would be involved. We had to say, um, stay focused on whatever ingredients we had on the menu that existed and then drive in incremental revenue up to $25 million at a time, right? Across the US and internationally. So whatever we came up with as a product idea could not, again, stretch the back of house operationally. We had to do operational shakedowns. We had to retain quality, um, <laughs> create profit in a very hyper-competitive market. How do you, how do you profit? A how do you create profit on a taco, right? 79 cent tacos, um, and then maintain standardization ingredients as we rolled out 52 weeks a year. So that's really where I cut my teeth on what, what does it mean to win in a complex environment? against bigger and broader competitors. Um, and then as I came into the portfolio of Dr. Pepper, most people know it as a, as a, you know, a soda brand, but we had 51 brands in that portfolio, all with different spend levels, including Clamato, Penafiel. Um, we had a licensing team who did uh, food and beverage development. So my goal there was I passed through several desks. Front end, again, innovation and sensory development, which was all about food and beverage development. Um, that was working with a sensory team. So if somebody said, you know, we would like a cherry Dr. Pepper, that sounds easy until you sit down with the best sensory developers on the earth and realize that there's 26 variants of cherry, maybe 46 variants, much like the cannabis plant, right? Really <laughs> indica sativa and thousands of variants behind it. But what does that mean in terms of taste, stabilization and effect? So that's where I started to cut my teeth on the sensory side. And then I worked my way through that. Um, to the back end of that um, development cycle to protect the band, brands on shelf, which is then when I started to lean in and learn retail selling solutions. How do you sell in against Coke and Pepsi when you're an eighth of their size or 50% of their size, but they carry 60% of your brand on their trucks? How do you ensure that they, one, put you on shelf, in, uh, put your points of eruption in store, and then how do you stay protected on shelf to expand your shelf presence? So that kind of gave me what I believe is the foundation that I could enter the cannabis market. There was, um, there was a guy who was an investor in the Dr. Pepper brand who jumped into cannabis. He was a VC guy, private equity guy, VC guy, who happened to um, call me one day. And I was centered in Texas, in Plano, Texas, and said, would you be interested in coming and working for this company called MedMen? And I was quiet. I said, I don't know what that is. And he said, it's cannabis. And I was like, absolutely not, right? <laughs> I was raising my son and I was like, no, I try to get him not to, not to smoke weed, you know, whatever it was. And um, they kept knocking on my door. And then one of my friends actually ended up being hired there through, through another connection and they called me again. So I entered um, the interview sequence and they hired me within two days on the spot. So I was their senior vice president of innovation. Um, I was the one who helped build out what they called their state-made portfolio at that time and was leveraging the disciplines, best-in-class disciplines I used in the CPG world um, to bring that forward, including like stage gate product development, 
if you're gonna fail, fail early. Lead with data. Commercialize responsibly, right? Don't spend 110 million to launch something that never had a chance to stick in the market. So using those disciplines, we helped kind of build out this state-made portfolio. Um, very early in development of that, I was calling audibles on, on pricing pressures, right? So I don't think, you know, if we want to monetize this product line, we need to get better um, and smarter on how we build each step of the process, including packaging, because we're already disadvantaged with 280E. So how do we profitize on top of not those usual customer expenses not being able to be written off? on top of having really over-designed packaging at some points in the process. You don't always win the conversations uh, based on using data, but that went to market. And then I exited and went to a company called Candescent where uh, they were building out their extraction facility. And I was head of uh, the labs at that point, helping them optimize extraction and to stabilize the rollout of their vape pen, which I held back because there was uh, quality issues. So again, leveraging best-in-class practices from food development, I put pressure on them to hold back and be safe and do rollout safely, smartly, and profitably. That's the foundation. We definitely need more of that in cannabis. Yes, yes. So our goal, uh, the reason I started Vivid Integrated Solutions is because I spoke on a panel um, in Canada about product development during my tenure at Candescent. And when I exited the stage, I had a line of people <laughs> wanting, waiting to talk to me saying, hey, could you help us? Or what does this mean? You know, what is stage gating? What does commercialization mean? What is a revenue roadmap? Um, how do you monetize parts of the business smartly? What do you mean by concept testing? What do you mean by retail selling solutions? So I was teaching them a new language. Um, they weren't necessarily ready for it, but they knew they needed help. And that was the gap I needed to fill, which is, we're here to industrialize, seriously industrialize cannabis with a CPG format. And it's, it's hard to do, but the first thing we talk about is operational excellence. Operational excellence is the key foundation to everything because it links the business end to end through analytics and through data so that these owners are not surprised by things that are happening at the operational level, right? They get visibility, they get quick access to if something turns red on the profit line or the revenue line or a quality line, they're the first to know. And then that A team or that leadership team can identify how that, what's the path to green and is it worth the squeeze? So we set up dashboards, operational dashboards that start at the base level and there are KPIs and, and, and metrics that must be hit at every step of the way through that organization in order to meet market demand and to meet timelines to go to market. And if any of those become at risk, it automatically allows the owners to stay focused on what really matters. They're not guessing, they're steering, they're not reacting. So that's what we do is we set that up. So when you were working in food and beverage with these huge brands, there was a lot of empirical data in the market, right? There was so much information for you to pull from that there wasn't a lot of guesswork. How has that been in cannabis where, you know, state to state, it's different, new state versus, you know, state that's been around for a while, medical versus rec. How are you, how do you deal with that? How do you strategize against wishy-washy data, no data? How does that work? Right. Um, it's really capturing custom data, right? So it's putting a little spend behind 
you know, talking to your bud tenders, talking to your retailers. Now we say it's retail back, right? If you want to really understand demand, it starts with the consumer wallet. So if everybody's building the same product, then it's going to be about who does it better, faster, higher quality and consistency. That's where the standardization comes in. So you've got to match the front to the back. And it starts with, again, voice a customer, and then you roll it backwards and say, here's how you build your roadmap, your product roadmap. So do you really think it's smart to build something that's emerging? And you see this all the time. I want to build a soda. I want to build a I want to build a drink. And I was pushing back pretty hard on some um, some companies I was consulting with because I was challenging them to think forward on the economics. Right. This is what a revenue officer does. You say, okay, you want to do that, but do you understand the distribution risk that comes with building something that's an eight ounce drink? Do you understand the pressures on shelf that comes with that in terms of stabilizing the formulation? I mean, you have to kind of take and tie all of those pieces to say, you can't just think where you are, you got to think where you're going and the economics have to connect end to end. So this operating system that Vivid, uh, my company, Vivid Integrated Solutions will build is a custom operations system again end to end for that business model and we tend to focus on vertically integrated um, owner operators we get tons of uh, responses on can you help us do a product formulation and we can do that all day long that's just a one-off but where we where we actually do our best work is to come in and look at the operation in a 360 degree view look at every ounce of their business every piece and see what needs to be either optimized adjusted or even thrown out right? Because there's there's no good in waste. You want to use lean manufacturing principles and continuous improvement to continue to, to extract profit from your business. So let's say we have a two or three person operation. I make balms. I have a vape. I'm hyper local. What strategies or what advice could you give me to help me kind of figure out why I'm not driving revenue? Where where should someone who's at a, that level really start to analyze what is going wrong? Why am I not getting on shelves? Why, why am I bleeding money? Mm -hmm. What are some good strategies for someone in that position? And the, yeah, so typically for the smaller operators, especially when you're in the early stages of revenue, um, if you're not getting your fair share of shelf or you're being delisted from shelf, right? The first thing you understand is the voice of that retailer. Why am I being delisted? And then understand, is there, a, is there a selling solution that's missing? And by that, I mean, do they understand the benefit of your product? Do they understand why it's important to the market? Because if you launch into market quickly, you, sometimes we see a lot of um, owners who haven't done the previous homework to say, what is my point of difference? Why am I meaningful to the mar market? And why do I have a right to win? If I'm seated in California, um, when I was running kind of the retail inlets, incoming brands at um, state, I'm sorry, against state made coming into MedMen, we saw the best in class companies coming in from Humboldt and you can see who had the best pitch decks, right? Who did their homework? Who understood why they were differentiated? Who understood why their pricing architecture was going to gain, gain traction on shelf? Because you can't race to the bottom on price alone, right? You've got to have something to stand on. And that's where it always starts with, tell me diagnostically what's happening at shelf. Is it a quality issue? Is it a price issue? Is it a differentiation issue? There's some key diagnostics that can lead you back to the root cause and everything is foundationally based on what is the root cause. 
And is it worth fixing? Can I? Okay. So I've got to ask you from your perspective is I am woman owned or my product is woman focused or I'm minority owned or my product is minority focused. Is that the, the, the differentiator, the powerful differentiator that we think it is when we're building the company? Does it really translate? Um, here's what I like to say. This is something we learned for years in, in CPG including female-owned brands. There is a point of difference because the story is believable, but at the end of the day, here's what you have to think through is what is, what is the, what's in the pocket of the consumer right now? And right now we're under what I would consider pretty strong recessionary type pressures, not maybe true full blown, but you're seeing extreme pressures on the pocket of the consumer. That changes everything. So what used to become the primary selling point, there's always huge support for what I call the underdog, right? So female-owned businesses, minority like us, <laughs> um, brands that we prop up the market, like one of my commitments is to always support female supply chains in a big way. And uh, my link into Florida that where I've raised this 300 million to help prop them up when they come into licensing here in August and November um, is a Black-owned female who's been trying to enter the space for a long time, fully committed, has years and years of experience building relationships, but needed the leadership to help her go to market. That's my commitment. Very believable, helps create a reason for fundraising, gets the attention of the VCs and the PEs and the money line. But when you go to market, that's not always a differentiator because it depends on the economics of the consumer wallet. And two, the best, play, the best approaches I've seen is if you're not creating solutions for the consumer, then you're going to have you're going to lack what they call repeat purchases or depth of repeat. You won't get you won't get your money back because they're going to say, well, what's in it for me? What do I get for it? So it's not enough to be minority owned. It's not enough to be that. That's a differentiator. And that's another additional prop. But at the end of the day, how are you solving something in their life? Why does it matter to them and why does it make their life better? How does it enhance their purchase occasion? Why does it make why does it make it come back to your brand? What is it that you're doing differently? In traditional retail, um, we used to fight, you know, head to head on soda because it was under pressure for calories and the diets were under pressure because of having bad aspartame or different sweeteners that weren't really healthy. Um, so what you had to start to do is look at your total portfolio and balance it with healthier options, calories in, calories out, right? Getting a little bit more what we call occasion based marketing surrounding it, which is we're not just this, we're broader than this. Um, an example of that is um, in fountain food service, there are contracts that lock down the fountains, right? So Coke will go in and say, I have a service contract with um, this fast food provider. So no other, I'm only going to allow maybe one other competitor to be on maybe one of those little fountain pools. Well, we did work with Dr. Pepper and learned that if you place it next to Coke, it lifts the entire, the entire selling cycle. It creates incremental consumption across the entire line. If you set it next to Pepsi, it doesn't become a substitute. It becomes a replacement because they're both sweet. Those are the dimensions of what we call occasion-based marketing or insights modeling that help you create incremental revenue because it's the, the devil's in the details. And that's you know my experience in analytics and stuff that I used back in the day to set up roadmaps, kind of monetize into the selling solution, which then creates selling stories on category management and staying on shelf and getting 
faster rotation. So it's an end-to-end -end view. I'm going in different places, but it all ties back into the insight of the, of the human behavior. It really does because they're the ones that manage the pocket. That's so interesting. You know, when you were talking about Dr. Pepper, it just took me back to being a kid and excited when we would find a fountain that had Dr. Pepper because it wasn't easy to find. And then I know several people that would go and they would fill up every a, stro a drip from every soda, right? They'd hit everyone. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, yeah. it's consumer <laughs> behavior is so interesting. It is interesting. It's unpredictable, but it's predictable at times, right? It's un it's unpredictable in brand choice usually, or brand what they call they used to call brand loyalty. People say, "Where's the loyalty?" Well, guess what? Gen Z, Gen, they don't even know what that means. They don't know what that means. So that's where occasion based and solution selling comes in. Is, you know, <laughs> why does it matter? It's a total solution now. And and a, and a, this is old school retailing, but. Um, we had a company back in the day that said, we can't get our marshmallows to move. I'm not kidding. This is all consulting back when I started jumping to consulting. Um, the only way we could solve it is going to camping moments and land what they call center of the store by doing a, a Hershey's tie-in, right? So now you walk into a Walmart or a Target during camping season and you see they land the lobby. That's a big solution selling moment. End caps in stores, then translated into Amazon. So our youngsters that are coming to the store that are just turning 21 and walking into the store are looking across that going, okay, well, I'm used to endless aisles on Amazon. I'm used to eight screens digitally, which I call the Amazon effect, right? They're digital natives. They don't think like we think at moments of truth on shelf. They have a different mindset on how they shop and they are becoming the next between them and then the older cohorts, which are old school, which have the big pocketbooks or the youngsters who are coming in that shop very different those two worlds have to converge and you got to see that the clarity in those two worlds. So how do you, how do you make that work when cannabis purchasing is done? It can't be done online. I mean, you can go put your order in online and you get it delivered, but it's very different than an Amazon experience because you're still limited by that retailer, whether it's delivery or not. Uh, abs absolutely. So how are you absolutely with, the Gen Z buying habits against cannabis. Well, they Retail. still they still shop with the same mental model that they do, and they shop everything with the same mental model, right? It doesn't matter that their end result means going to is driven to a store um, just because it's the product, but the way they think is similar based on their purchase decision making process. Um, we do a lot of research. Again, I always come back to knowing the mindsets of those consumers and the frontier data does a lot of that. You'll see them come out with, you know, the cohorts and understanding that those dimensions are really important when you bring a product to life through a product brief, because who are you targeting? Do you have a right to win? Like you, there needs to be standardization when you're building that first product on the reason to believe that it should exist and why it exists because the money will, will come later. But um, that first step is truly important. And that's, when I walk into, like when I was the chief revenue officer for this large multinational or this um, MSO, I came in and the first thing I did is say, show me your, your product portfolio. How did these products come into the market? Because there's going to be a fast follower, right? There's first mover advantage is now accelerated. So a lot of people went, I was first to do X, Y, or Z, live resin, live, you know, something like that. Um, diamonds, you know, something. Well, now everybody's doing it, right? So... How are you winning? 
And I will tell you that it, it came down to the power of the brand. It came down to the power of the brand. It really did. It was like your tagline, your branding opportunity, your ability to, to get to the heart of that consumer because there are moments that matter will absolutely monetize. And it did. And that's where we got that lift, right? But it meant, it meant two things, cutting what didn't work, recognizing what could work and being adept and agile and refocusing your business opportunities time and time again, that's rapid continuous improvement. You can't stay the course and never change. And it's again, it's always comes down to, to small changes and small adjustments as you work your way up to that revenue line. So for any women who are listening right now and are as fascinated by this as I am, um, and, and really understand the need to drive higher revenue for your company, but maybe stuck. Are there any books that you can recommend that can really help guide them in how to think strategically around this? Any other books, resources, blogs, where can they go? I mean, yes, they could go to you, but yeah, where can you start to get some education on it? Because it sounds like it is, I mean, it's a make or break for a company if you don't understand how to do Absol Absolutely. It, it is. It is. Um, you know, I think the best thing for me to say is let me get back to you on that because there's a, there's a, some research. I want to be very specific about where I would point small operators too, right? Cause I'm, I'm in startup mode too on some other ideas, but um, there are definitely places where you can look at marketing to moments and these things that work because it's, it's, it's not as complex as it sounds. It's not as complex as it sounds. I mean, it means that you have an ear for, for things that other people don't hear or eyes to see what others don't see. And it's almost those things that you go, well, didn't you hear that? That That's how that could become a platform. Not everybody has that intrinsic skill. So the other thing to do is kind of find coaches that can coach that or to point them to resources that say, here's the steps to try to get there. It's a blending of two words, two worlds. And I'll say that what I've seen is the creatives of the world, who are the people who build like advertising campaigns that you see on TV, you know, the big Deutsches of the world, the big ad agencies, those are very different, very different thinkers than people who have to monetize business like a revenue line, right? I'm I'm what they call a center brain thinker because I have both sides of the model crossing over, um, one from experience and two, just because that's how my brain is built. But I have worked with people who said, I can't cross, I can't cross that line. So that's when I say, find a mentor who does, find a friend who does, right? And brainstorming is, is that moment where the more the merrier, the more people in the room that you can bounce ideas off is when you hear, sometimes you hear magic. So sometimes it's a book, sometimes it's a friend group, sometimes it's, you know, getting mentors and, and, and friending people that you didn't know existed. Just pull them onto a phone call and say, you know, what do you think about this? And you can kind of hear magic in, in the conversation unfold. That's why your networking groups are so beautiful. And that's why everything you're doing as a foundation you know, to promote female leadership works because all of these different thinkers in the room and diversity comes together. It's, it's, it's a, it's beautiful work. Okay. So this show is about fundraising. So yes. let's talk about how revenue obviously has a big impact on being able to get somebody to invest in your company, but what kind of revenue are they looking for and how do you build a company that can 
achieve that. There are a lot of different types of companies that are really good at raising revenue, but then they're not really an investable business. So how do we know, like, this is my dream project and it's great. I'm making money and I can pay a couple of people, but it's not really ever going to be attractive to an investor versus, oh yeah, this is a hot business that investors are going to love. I'm revenue positive. How do I build more? And what, you see what I'm getting at? Like what kind of revenue are they really looking for? Well, we, so we've run in as Vivid. Um, we started helping doing fundraising support about five years ago and it, it morphed out of conversations um, when products were failing in market because of quality issues. So it started with, hey, my formulation has a red ring. What can I do? My vape pen's leaking. And all of a sudden, oh, we're going to build something different. These were companies who had, you know, 20 million in revenue, but were losing ground. Or we had a super, super startup who said, I have a great idea and a vape concept. Um, so I'm pre-revenue. So there's pre-revenue, there's large revenue that's losing share. And in the mid-ground, there's, you know, startup and I'm gaining traction. And is this going to take me to the next level or not? Is this idea going to, you know, penetrate the market? Um the, the thing that I've always seen over and over again, they're very different paths to funding, as you stated. Hedge funds will never go after pre-revenue opportunities, ever. That's where you have to go after private money, right? So then you have to go after the VCs. The VCs that we're running into, and Vivid has, is backed by 160 connections back in the background. Um, here's what they've asked us to do. This is just by way of example. We have a checklist that's a 370-point checklist that if it's an, somebody who manufactures products, they say, I want to place my bets. I want to place something. I want to place $15 million somewhere. Tell me where to place it because you have connections in the industry. And we come in with our scorecard and assessment as third-party partners. We assess the opportunity and we come back and say, here's a quantitative score. Take it or leave it, right? They say, no, I don't want to invest because it's too high risk or yes, but let's get in kind of, let's get in bed with them to talk about how we can restructure the opportunity, right, on a partnership deal or a strategic partnership or um, not taking equity of their company and putting in a debt structure. So we'll talk about that deal structure shifting. There's a million ways to structure a deal. Um, what you usually find out is twofold. If you can prop up a concept just for screening on, hey, here's my idea, here's a basic two-pager or one-page pitch, and you can send that through some of your VC partners or your funding partners, they're gonna tell you whether there's de demand there. Are they hearing that? And always back to, is there demand in the numbers? If you're forecast, you rarely see bad forecasts, right? But <laughs> who builds a bad forecast? But if there's true traction and it's meeting what you see the projections are in market trends, then there's a real story there. So it's where is the money going and then where is the data going and are those two converging? If you're building something that's ahead of the curve, a product type that maybe is starting to emerge and you're an early adopter, those are the hardest ones to monetize and the hardest ones to lean into from a, from a solution selling. Interesting. So being an early adopter can be really work against you. Not everyone is a Facebook or a Twitter, right? Right, right. Early, early development of products that don't have a known reason to be in existence. A new usage, a new usage type, right? 
I'll, I'll throw out an example here. I work with a lot of medical companies on the doctor side and um, they talk about, you know, I'm gonna create products for cramps, a female-centered product, or I'm gonna create, um, well, we'll just leave it there. There's sexual intimacy things out there. Those are all really, really specific occasions that people understand um, that you don't have to explain. But when you start to get into that mid-range, and this could be specific to a medical product or a rec product. doesn't matter what the rec product is. If it's a new usage occasion, um, I'll give an example. In, in traditional grocery stores, you see those little, you know, the Kool-Aid things, the little pack sticks, that, what they call PSDs. Those don't really exist in the cannabis space yet. They're not really there. They're in hemp a little bit. They're in CBD all day long. But that powdered form hasn't been in existence because there's a formulation challenge in play there, just like there is on solubility on shelf-stable versions. So we were working with someone to try to bring that to the market, and we couldn't do it because the consumer wasn't familiar with that in the cannabis sector yet. What do you mean? What do you mean? What do I do with this? Does it... Can it be applied into hot and to cold? And the minute that they have to ask more than three questions, you lose their interest. That's, that is really good advice because the cannabis industry is full of women who have been touched deeply by the plant and now are building businesses. And some of them are businesses that are not going to succeed. And I've watched a lot of women throw their wealth away because they weren't educated, they were being driven by passion. I mean, I've seen it in my own family. Hundreds of thousands of dollars gone into a product that never, it just became, you know, it vanished into thin air. So. Yeah, and, and if you can't, here's my take on it, right? And, and I run into this a lot because I've mentored female entrepreneurs for a long time, a long time, who were trying to make it to the C-suite in traditional models and now in cannabis my science officer, like my 11 people on my team, all but one are female, right? So it's like, I hear you, right? We have psilocybin emerging. <laughs> we have psychedelics emerging. Um, very hard road to toe if you're not heavily funded. Know where to place your bets and be realistic. If you can't monetize passion, <laughs> you want to it's fun to have a pet project but you know you see that even with big owners we call them pet projects which is like we get that you love that but that's not the one you put on blast that's the one that you put on the side and let float along because you're creating revenue over here to co-fund that without eating letting this be your only place to eat that's why you have to have more than one idea to monetize it so it can float these little what we call pet projects but I, I just like you, I've seen it a lot and it, it, it hurts my heart because you don't ever want to see that happen. Yeah, me too. I want to plug all the holes in the industry where women are losing money. And this is this is one of the big ones. I'm guilty of it myself. So, oh, I, I, we've all been there. We've done it. I, I've done it. Um, I've have I have plenty of failures under under my cap. Right. In terms of boy, that didn't work out the way I thought. But, you know, our ethos, or we'd like to say, is when we come in to consult with a company, operationally or otherwise, it's win fast, lose fast. That's it. That's what you want to do. I mean, that, that, is, the, that is the point of entrepreneurialism is knowing when to call it quits because that's part of strategic leadership is saying, I know when this isn't a good idea and I know I need to pivot. Yeah, versus the little uh, cartoon where the guy's digging the hole and then he just <laughs> gives up right before he makes the breakthrough. It's like... 
Oh, right, boy, those right. are two competing ideas. Right. It's so, it's so hard when you believe in it, though. It's so hard. But you can still believe in it and come up with a potentially different idea within that strategy, right? What they say is don't, don't change the goal line and don't change the strategy. Change the ideas that are, that are kind of surround, you know, emerging within that, that structure. Keep your structure, right? Just like redecorating your house. Don't change the structure, redecorate. Right, that's good advice. So, that's really good advice. Okay. Yeah. So we're gonna move on to our final segment, which is She Had My Back. So I love this part of the show because it's all about what we're doing here, supporting women who are doing the real work behind the scenes who actually rarely get credit for what they have done. So today I have our two submissions, but I want to ask you to name a woman who has had your back that doesn't get the credit she deserves. So I'm going to let you think about that. I'm going to read these two and then we're going to come back to your submission. Okay, Shelly? Okay, okay, okay. Okay. So our first submission today is from Dottie Lulick. Dottie, I hope I pronounced that right. She wants to give a shout out to Dr. Joan Irving. She says, Dr. Joan Irving's continued support and encouragement as I transverse through the ever-changing cannabis industry. We went together to the NCIA lobbying days in 2019, and she helped guide me through the process. She's available as my mentor to listen to my questions and concerns. When she sees a potential position on LinkedIn, she forwards it to me. She sees the long game and knows how to pivot since she has had since she has needed to do that many times herself. Her focus is now cannabis education for active 55 plus. Her years of being a therapist certainly come in handy. Thank you, Dottie, and thank you, Dr. Joan, for the great work that you both do. Up next, we have uh, Shifra Klein. She brings Janice Hardoon, badass owner of K-Town Collective Dispensary in Los Angeles, founder of Canfections Cannabis Kitchen in California, and co-founder of Hamas Edibles in LA. She tells us that Janice is an OG in the industry, owning an LA dispensary back in 2008. Wow, that is an OG. Wow, wow. In 2015, when I was looking for ways to relieve my son from his severe symptoms from autism, Janice was donating flour to me to experiment with. When I began to heal my son, I started to help others in our community and join forces with Janice. Once she got licensing for her kitchen, she invited me to join her in revolutionizing the edibles industry. We've created together Hamas Edibles, the first and only certified kosher, premium, fast-acting, vegan, gluten-free gummies in California. I couldn't do it without the support of Janice. Together, we're educating the community and bringing inclusive, accessible products to the people. She is a blessing. Wow. That was a beautiful way for a friendship and partnership to start. Thank you for sharing that with us, Shifra, and thank you, Janice, for your compassion and generosity. What goes around truly comes around. Love it. All right, Shelly, you're up next. What woman would you like to celebrate that has had your back? Oh, this is so hard because there's so many. <laughs> there's so many. So I reverse it. I'm reversing a little bit on it's not someone that mentored me. It's someone who sticks by my side thick or thin maintaining the most positive composure and professionalism. And I, I, these are people that you know are your superstars because they uplift you, right? And I'm like, she's never in a bad mood. She's just always there to help me win. It doesn't matter the situation. She's fully committed. 
and she's my chief science officer. And I met her because she worked at the lab incandescent and I didn't really know her then, but I would talk to her and I was like, there is something about her. She intrigues me and I don't know what it is. And I want to get to know her more and a friendship emerged. And then when I started Vivid, I pulled her in and she's been here ever since. And I adore her. And it's Sierra Solnick. Um, Sierra Solnick has, is now completing her medical training in Portland. So I propped her up. I provided recommendations. Um, I attended med school. So there's like this continuity there that we, we love with each other. And um, I propped her up and said, let's go. And I started connecting into places where I thought would kind of support her end goal of being a psilocybin expert. She has direct experience in the psychedelics realm um, internationally uh, extracting psilocybin. And we're working to get um, a license under our portfolio because of her expertise. And my goal is to help her launch her company. I have her helped her set up her business infrastructure, her pitch deck. Um, she does beautiful work. And because of her scientific knowledge and her com- just her commitment um, to using it through a medical lens, but understanding the rough market and how those two worlds come together, there's going to be a place for her in a big way. Always, always. Not only with me, but in the, in the bigger. I think she'll be a CEO very soon. Wow. She has it in her. I will look out for Sierra and her amazing company. I would love she's, to she's She is one of the best... Uh, nowhere, no matter where I place her, no matter what I ask her to do, she, she rises to the challenge and she doesn't let anything stand in the way of becoming, making it a success. And she's our chief science officer. I adore her. That's awesome. Well, thank yeah. you for sharing that with us, Shelly. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It has been. Listen, this was a great conversation and I really would love to have you back because you have so much fascinating knowledge, not just in the CPG <laughs> world, but of driving revenue. And I think that is a conversation we need to have over and over and over and over again so that women become more comfortable talking about it and smarter strategizing their revenue. So thank you for everything you gave us today. You bet. And my goal, um, just as we talk about, you know, where we, anytime I can mentor, I'm up for the challenge. Anytime I can coach, I'm up for the challenge. That's just part of giving back. I love it. It's love. It's what I love to do. So, um, you know, he's talked about propping up young females who maybe don't have the language or the experience yet to sit at that table and sit with the corporate giants, as I call them, right? These, these funding people, when you talk about a hundred million dollars coming into the industry or you're, you know, along with Panther group, Charlie and the team fundraising, those are, those are behind the scenes. Those investors have a specific language. And if you're going to pitch your idea, it's just like going in front of Shark Tank. So we, we got to get you ready for that, right? There's coaching that can occur to say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have a little playbook here on, on the steps to get there, right? There's a roadmap, but number two, are you ready? And can you, can you believably withstand <laughs> the headwinds that are going to come your way? Because you've got to stand your ground and you've got to believe, make them believe that you know what you're doing. You might, you might have the idea, but you got to have the business acumen to follow. And if you don't have it, how are you going to find it? That's what they're going to ask, right? There's forward-looking questions every investor is going to ask. Are you ready? I love, well, I may have the perfect opportunity for you. The Roadmap to Funding Mentor Program that WIC <laughs> and the Panther Group has launched. And our first session is on June 7th. It's an eight-week virtual course. 
set up for women oh, wow. to discuss exactly what you're talking about. And I still have a few spots open for mentors. So I will be talking with you after. Please do. Please reach out. Anything you need. I, I've, I've supported you from the day that I saw it. You know, um, I've been trying to prop up every, you know, share what you guys do because I believe in it so, so much. And it's, it's great. I'm great that it's starting to emerge more and more in the industry. So I look forward to staying connected. Me too, Shelly. Thank you, ladies, for tuning in. If you haven't yet downloaded the Roadmap to Funding, the essential guide for starting your funding journey for success, go to thepanthergroup.co forward slash Roadmap to Funding. And tune in again next week for another episode of Women Leading in Cannabis. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.